everyone, and welcome to another episode of Picture Blurfect. I'm your host, Naomi Harlembachis-Wilkerson. Welcome back, everyone. I know it's been a few weeks. I'll explain a little bit later why it's been a few weeks, but I also have gotten this new sound bar for my birthday, and it has all of these little sound effects. Like, okay, my personal favorite is... It's so much fun. Okay, so you might hear just like little spurts of of different sound effects throughout the interview. <laughs> no, I'll try to be, keep this professional. Anyways, today's episode is I, I have featured Cara Lissette. She is in the UK and she's she's just wonderful. She's such a big mental health advocate and she has her own blog, Cara's Corner. She has a new book coming out next April. So be sure to pre-order that on Amazon. It's actually an interactive book. It's called The Eating Disorder Recovery Journal. And I'll include a link to both her blog and the journal um, in, in the episode description. But definitely check those out because she's just so honest and real about not only her lived experience, but ways that other people can really implement these helpful strategies to get through recovery. And that's honestly what we need. We need conversations like this and of people that I try to bring onto the podcast, but we also need, you know, helpful strategies to really implement into the treatment facilities and and for physicians to get on board with this. So we could really help defeat eating disorders. Not only do we want to find a cure for this ultimately one day, but you know, in the meantime, when we can't and researchers are working on that, then let's try to find some good treatment strategies. So anyways, uh, that's a little bit um, about the episode coming up. I'm so excited to bring it to you. I could have talked to her for hours, mainly because I just love listening to her accent. <laughs> There's just something about the British accent that I just love versus you know my own voice, which I don't know. I've always hated my own voice, but here I am doing a podcast. So yeah, that's that. Um, so the reason why this has been a, a few weeks late is, you know, without going into too many details about, you know, my own personal work that I do aside from this podcast, um, I've just, I've gotten some death threats, uh, through social media, uh, for reasons because people are dumb, I guess. Uh, that's just one way to put it, but people don't get the full information. And, you know, when it comes to science, they just automatically think scientists are, these crazy people in lab white coats with these beakers and they mix, you know, these deadly viruses together. And that's why they are evil people. And, you know, I am, I am a scientist. I'm, I'm proud of it, but when I'm outspoken about scientific issues, I get death threats in return. And I think it really hit me because it was a large amount of death threats. And sometimes I just, I don't understand why people are okay with treating others that way. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm just, I, I think I'm just too naive sometimes. And I, I try to see the best in people, but that really, really brought me down. And it really was triggering for me because I've had thoughts in the past of like, you know, am I good enough? And do I even deserve to be in this world? You know, if, if I left, then I don't think people would care. And it's just not good. It's just, so that was really hard for me. Um, and it didn't make matters better because I kind of kept it from my husband. I didn't tell him what was going on. So I bottled it up and it just morphed into something that's not good for you mentally, emotionally. And then for me, having an eating disorder, you know, I start to then hear those voices louder and I, I restrict and I want to, you know, go out and exercise and those, those compulsions, those urges come back. So that was really hard. Um, I had to just take a couple of days to just be like, you know what? This is not, those people don't matter. I'll probably never meet them. 
their opinion doesn't matter. They don't know me. They don't know the full story. So why why do I take so much stock in that? But it's still hard to read those words, you know? Um, but anyways, that's a little bit why this episode's been late. I've been really struggling with that mentally and trying to work through those those feelings. Um, but anyways, I, I hope that that kind of offers some feedback. I know you guys have missed me. Um, I really do love doing this podcast and I hope to dedicate a lot more time to it. We have this one and then another episode coming up and then we'll probably take a break for the holidays and then pick back up with season two early next year. So I'm really excited about that. If there are people that you would like me to interview, topics that you would like me to cover, please feel free to send me an email, shoot me a message on Twitter. I would I would love that because we want all perspectives and I want to make sure that I learn from you guys. I mean, that's, that's what this podcast is all about. So without further ado, Cara Lissette. here with Kara Lissette. I'm so excited to interview her for Picture Blurfit. I have a lot of questions for you, but um, I'll start off with an easy one. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your current mission as a mental health blogger. Um, yes, yeah, so my name is Kara. Um, I run a mental health blog called Kara's Corner, where um, initially I started it up just to talk about more like generic mental health stuff. And then as I've had it longer, I started to use it to document like my own experiences with my mental health in a bit more detail. Um, so that's kind of the main thing that I do really. And just like a lot of campaigning on social media, I suppose, around like um, mental health awareness, particularly around eating disorders, especially. Um, so that's yeah. generally you'll find me either on my blog or across social media. Yeah. Yeah. And you also have a book coming out next April. So I'm really excited to read that. So tell us a little bit about it. It's called The Eating Disorder Recovery Journal. Yeah. So basically I started it because um, when I was going through treatment for my eating disorder most recently, um, I started like journaling um, the process and I've been in treatment a few times before and I hadn't really kept track of it that much. And my thoughts were that if I um, document everything then maybe the learning from treatment will go in a bit more but also it means I'll be able to reflect on it at times when I need it in the future if there's times where I'm feeling like a bit wobbly or um, I'm not doing quite so well then I've got all these resources to look back on and say oh this is the things that I did in therapy or this is what I learned yeah. in day patient etc um, and then I started sharing like a few bits of it on Instagram and people were really liking it and saying like, oh this is really helpful thanks for sharing this and then I just kind of thought about actually like putting all that stuff together um formally in a way that other people could access it and then I put something on Twitter just asking like if I did something like that would people be interested in it and then um a publisher just got in touch with me and said actually this sounds like something that we think would be we'd really um like to kind of support you with um so I sent my manuscript off to them and they really liked it so it all kind of went from there really so the idea of it is um it's like an interactive journal so it's got like creative activities in it and like um lists and like goal setting and coloring pages and um different ways to like um record progress and like journal pages and stuff like that so the idea is that people can basically use it as a resource to help them through whatever their recovery journey is and have something um to kind of look back on and reflect on like I made for myself when I was in yeah 
Oh, I love that. And that actually shows that social media can be a good thing, you know, because a lot of times it can be pretty toxic, but yeah. there are some, some good things and some, some good people out there on there. That's, that's amazing. I'm really excited to, to dig into it and, and read it, but I'm so glad that you ventured into that and decided to go to formalize it, like you said, and in general, your, your advocacy and, and your honesty on social media is, is what really drew me to you. Um, but what drew you to be so open and honest about your experience in your recovery? Like, was it scary to take that step? Yeah, it was really scary because when I started, so basically the way I started talking about my mental health is I started working for a charity um, over here in the UK where my job was basically to go around into like different schools and deliver presentations about mental health. And a lot of that was coming from like my lived experience. Um, and that was specifically what my role was within that charity. Yeah. But I didn't really talk to anybody like in my life about it. So it was like I had this kind of double life where I would like go around and talk to all these like assemblies full of kids. And then when I'd come back into like just with regards to like my friends and family, I didn't really share very much at all. Um, so doing that, I got like really nice responses from people. And I guess that made me just feel a bit more confident in being able to talk about my own experiences with people that I was a bit closer to. Um, and then I set up a Twitter account and I just kind of lurked for like a couple of years, just watching <laughs> like what everyone else is doing and kind of just came across this like community of people um, that were all really sort of open about their mental health experiences. And then I guess that made me feel like a little bit more confident in being able to do that. Um, mm. So to start with, when I started writing blogs, I used to write them for other people anonymously because I was really worried that anyone would find out that I'd written them. And oh. then as time went on, I was just like, oh, actually, I feel may maybe I can share a little bit more. And then I started sharing things that were like historical for me. So I'd be like, you know, oh, a couple of years ago, I had this experience and this is what it was like. But I was really um, cautious of sharing stuff that I was going through at the time. Yeah. And then I think just through trial and error really and just like building a following and people being really supportive and I just had like really nice responses from people and then I just felt a little bit more confident as time went on really to be more honest about yeah. how things were at the time um and I get really nice messages from people saying that like stuff that I've written has been really helpful for them so that's what kind of encourages me to keep yeah. doing it yeah no and I, I love that we need that more and I think like I remember in my recovery like I admitted it, you know, finally to my family and, and to doctors. And for a while it was like, you know, I wanted to keep it like that. It was this double life. Um, but once you do admit it and you are open about it, I think more people are drawn to you because of that, because you're so honest and transparent. And I think then people just kind of make them more willing to speak up about, you know, struggles that they may be going through. So I know that first step is always really hard. It was for me and it's, you know, it's a day by day thing. Some days are easier. Some days, some days it's just, it's never a straight line. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but, and you're not only um, navigating recovery from anorexia, but also bipolar disorder. So mm -hmm. can you share some insight into both of those? Cause you mentioned it in one of your recent blog posts. So like dig in a little bit into that. Yeah. So I got diagnosed with depression when I was about 13, 14. Mm. Um, and then it just never quite fit. Um, and there were just times in my life where things were like really chaotic and um, I wasn't sleeping and I'd spend a lot of money and things that now are just like really classic symptoms of having like a hypermanic or a manic episode gotcha. um, that just got sort of like 
more protracted as I got older and like um woke sort of like the severity increases I got older so I think it probably wasn't as noticeable as I was a teenager because teenagers have a lot of like mood fluctuations and stuff anyway um but they just started getting like longer and more noticeable um so I didn't actually get diagnosed with bipolar disorder until I was 25 so it was a really oh. long time after I first got diagnosed with depression wow. um so it took a really long time and I think that's the case for a lot of people is they they tend to get diagnosed like a lot later than when they first yeah. sort of have like an onset of symptoms um but then what was really problematic is I was actually doing quite well with my eating disorder around that time but then I started taking a medication for my bipolar disorder that caused a lot of weight gain and then I ended up oh. having a big relapse with my eating disorder so it, it all ended up kind of getting like really enmeshed um, oh man! So I changed medications like several times since then, um, but that was what kind of like flipped the switch for my eating disorder relapse again. Um, and then I I managed to sort of uh, function with my eating disorder. I would say for probably like another three years, where I was still able to like go to work and socialize and stuff. But it was just so it was like impacting my life, but not significantly like limiting it. Um, yeah. And then in 2019, it all just went like really downhill. And then I had to take. Uh, quite a long time off of work and going to like a day patient facility um which I hadn't had to do since I was a teenager um and it has yeah they they all like kind of they're two separate things but they do kind of link together sometimes because like Mm -hmm. obviously when people are really depressed like it does really affect your appetite and like how you feel about yourself um and equally when people are manic certainly for me I don't really eat very often because I'm just busy doing other stuff and I'm just not thinking about it and I'm not hungry it's just not a priority to me at all because I want to spend all my money and do all these great ideas of things that I've come up with that never really end up being anything Um, (laughs) so they all kind of they kind of link together really and then I find it quite difficult I suppose when I'm coming out of one of those episodes trying to get my eating like back on track again um, so they do, yeah, those those mood episodes do really throw a bit of a spanner in the works for my anorexia recovery at times. Yeah. No, you're right. We don't really hear about bipolar disorder and, and anorexia or any kind of eating disorder. We, I think most every person with an eating disorder has depression or anxiety. Mm-hmm. I think that's just the most common. Yeah. I was put on you know antidepressants pretty early on when I was in recovery and it helped tremendously, but I've never thought about a bipolar disorder. And I wonder if there's because I'm such a nerd, I wonder if there's more research into that, you know, and how we can better personalize the treatment for those because i'm sure it's not just you i'm sure there are others Mm -hmm. out there but they're not yet diagnosed or or for whatever reason um that's so interesting but i bet it's really hard too to navigate both yeah it is because i always i feel it feels like whack-a-mole i'm always trying to do one thing at a time and then another thing pops up um and i did find it quite frustrating. so when i got diagnosed i did have quite a lengthy conversation with the psychiatrist about medication and i did say i'm really reluctant to take anything that's likely to cause any weight gain because i've been doing really well in my recovery um and we had quite a long conversation about it and um, I did end up opting for something where I knew that that was a possibility, but it was a much more effective mood stabilizer. And at that point, I'd just been so like completely knocked sideways by the diagnosis and stuff. That I was like, okay, well, I'll give it a go. Yeah. Um, and I really regret doing that now because it had such a significant impact on my eating disorder. But um, I've got, I take medication that's really helpful for me now. Um, and okay. I don't have any side effects from it, but it just took me like quite a number of years to get to a point where I eventually found something yeah. that, or a couple of things that worked for me. 
Right. And it's like you said, it's different for every person and Mm -hmm. you kind of have to go through that trial period to figure it out. Oh, that's so hard. So in general, I guess, what is the hardest part of recovery for you for both anorexia, for um, bipolar disorder in general, like day by day, like what's the hardest thing for you? I suppose like with, with my bipolar, I, I manage it really well with medication. So actually now that, so I take an antipsychotic and a mood stabilizer now, and the combination of both of those keeps things like really stable for sort of 90% of the time. Um, so the last time I had a manic episode was 2018. Um, so wow. it's a long time ago now. And yeah. I would say, I would say I was, I was pretty depressed and my anorexia was bad, but I think it was because my anorexia was bad rather than it being like a symptom yeah. of my bipolar, you know? Um, so really that part of my life I, I don't really tend to think too much about it at the moment to be honest the only times it really crops up is like if I haven't slept very well for a couple of days I get really anxious that I'm like mm. oh god is this like the start of an episode mm. um but other than the fact that I just take medication every day it's not like too much of a significant factor in my life whereas like my eating disorder is something that I obviously think about like every day yeah um and like every meal and every morning yeah. when I wake up and like it's much you know takes up much less brain space now than it did like at the start of recovery or like when I was really unwell but I do feel like it's something that I have to like be constantly thinking about and constantly on top of because it's so easy to you know you just make a couple of small changes yeah yeah, and you think oh it's not a big deal I'll just do that once or you know it's just a one-off or it doesn't matter if I just miss one snack but one snack becomes two becomes three you know so I just feel like I just I have to just be thinking about it constantly to be on yeah. top of it. And it's tiring. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really exhausting. And I think I wish people could get inside my brain sometimes to really know yeah. like what goes on in my head. And I'm so lucky to have like a supportive partner. That's really mm-hmm. just helpful in that for me. But like he, he said, like, like, yes, he told me yesterday, he was like, you've been saying I feel fat a lot more frequently. And so he'll like catch me on it. And I'm like, I have. And he said, yeah, and you've been, are you okay? And we just kind of, you know, we talk it out and I need that, but it's, it is constant. And sometimes I verbalize it. Sometimes I don't. And it's just really, it's really hard. And I just wish, I know other people are going through it too. And they're Mm. just too scared to say it, or they're just unaware that they might have something. They're still in that denial phase. And I just want to like help them somehow. And so that's kind of what brought me to a podcast to try and like raise more awareness about it. And, and I, I did my PhD in neuroscience. So I'm I'm interested in how the brain operates with someone with an eating disorder and like, how can we understand it better? Cause we just don't, but then also like try and destigmatize eating disorders. It's not just in, in women. It's not just in white people. It's Mm -hmm. everyone. Um, and just raising more. Everything you're doing is just, it's so powerful and sharing your story. It just, it can go beyond just social media. It can really impact people. I hope so. And I think like the thing that people don't understand about it as well sometimes is even when you look like a day has gone fine or like, you know, you're, you're having dinner, people don't know like the, the conversations you've had to yourself for like hours before you've made that decision. So I think like, yeah, people just don't realize how much time it takes up to having all these conversations with yourself constantly to convince yourself to do the right thing. Exactly. It's, it's exhausting. Mm. And I, I wish I knew, I mean, I'm much better now, but I wish I knew 
what it felt like to be just carefree about everything yeah. <laughs> because in my mind, it's just constant. There's always something going on and mm. it takes a lot of effort for me not to look up the menu ahead of time. If we're going to a restaurant, like all sorts of things yeah. that people don't really think about without an eating disorder. Yeah. Or take it for granted, you know? Yeah. You yeah. Can, you can just go out and eat something. Like it's exactly. Not straightforward as that, is it? <laughs> exactly. Um, and a- another big part of the show is kind of shining a light on the misconceptions of, of eating disorders and how we can navigate this, this world of, of eating disorders, poor body image, you know, being self-conscious of who we are in a world that's really just constantly triggering us. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's just constant. Even if you don't have an eating disorder, it, you can maybe see something and it kind of sends your mind into this weird downward spiral. So what are some of your triggers um, I think things that I like looking at pictures of myself, like when I was unwell, is like a really significant one. And everyone's always like, well, just delete them and then you won't have to. But I'm just not at a stage in my recovery where I feel like that's something I can do at the moment. So like yeah. one day, hopefully, I, I think I might be able to do that. But at the moment, I can't. So um yeah it's still those things that, you know, they're all still like on my phone and sometimes I do look at them and then I feel terrible about myself afterwards. Um, So that's, and I always know that, you know, I'm pretty insightful about stuff. Like I know it's a terrible idea before I do it, but I do it sometimes (laughs) anyway. I know. Um, And things like, like just diet culture in general is like really difficult to navigate, isn't it? And it's like, it's just absolutely everywhere. Like it's so hard to avoid. And I find things like, um, particularly like when I was in recovery, like in, in treatment and like, I would have to eat so much every day as part of like the weight gain program that I'd be eating more than like, you know, my boyfriend or like right. friends and stuff like that. And I'd be like, how am I eating more than you when I'm the one with the eating disorder? It's like, but that's because I had a little weight gain and, you know, they didn't necessarily, but I found that really difficult because I really yes. just constantly compare what I'm eating to yes. what everyone else is eating, even now that. I'm not on a meal plan or anything anymore. I'm still always like, but you know, looking at what other people are doing to be like, am I eating too much or like, yep. are they not eating enough or why are they only eating that? And um, so yes. that's a really big one. Yeah. I think constantly. Yeah. And just things like, I don't know, I find like clothes shopping and stuff quite difficult <sighs> now as well. Um, fashion, yeah. yeah. I really, I really struggle with it now because I think, I was always either like one particular size or less. Um, And now I'm maybe like just slightly above that size, but not quite in the next size. So like I have to try everything on because I'm like, I'm not sure if like I'm one size or the other size now because I'm kind of in the middle of it sometimes. And I'm finding that like really, really stressful at the moment um, because I feel like, yeah, I don't quite, I don't quite fit into like a lot of the clothes I've always fit in, but some others are like too big for me if I go in the next size up. So I feel like it's a really like stressful process trying on right. and trying on clothes just like out of my wardrobe now as well. Like, I haven't worn for a while. And like every yeah. time I go to pick something up, I'm like, oh God, is this still going to fit me? Or like, what's going to happen when I try it's it on? Terrible. And am I going to feel awful? Yeah. yeah totally. No, it's, it's awful. That's why. Ugh, I don't even like I play that comparison game too and trying on clothes is just always going to end up in me wanting to not eat lunch or or whatever and, and kind of restrict and I don't know why our minds do that but that's always where my mind goes and I just 
I hate, I think we're getting a little bit better in terms of like body positivity and, and the, the advertisements and, and what you might see, but it's still pretty prominent that you have to be thin and perfectly proportioned to be beautiful. And it's just not really the reality or the pictures you see are all just airbrushed and cropped out. And and it's just, oh, it's just so hard. And I just want to throw out all of it, you know, and just kind of like burn everything to the ground. I just get so upset with, (laughs) with the diet and fashion culture. Cause even people where it's like, it is, you know, they are airbrushed, obviously, like 90% of stuff is that we're seeing in like adverts yeah. and stuff anyway. But even if it's not, those are people whose like job it is to look like that. So they've got all this time to like dedicate to that sort of thing. And like, yeah. I'm a therapist. I don't have time to be going to the gym for like eight hours a day. I'm really busy, you know? Like, right, got, right. Got- they have a personal trainer, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's just yeah. a completely unrealistic expectation for people to be able to like, like everyday people to be able to live up to. Right. And they don't have to worry about like, what size am I, am I going to be this size or the next size up or down because they have everything custom made. So Mm -hmm. it's like, they don't have to worry about it. It's just fit for their body, which I wish, you know, all of us could have that, but (laughs) not worry about it. No, I, I really hate clothes shopping and I play the comparison game a lot. Like if I, if I just, you know, make it, I'm a very regimented person. I have everything planned out and I'm very routine oriented. And if I say, okay, tomorrow I can just relax and just take it easy. But then the moment I see someone exercising or going for a run, I'm like, should I be exercising? Like, yeah. and I, I do that so much. And then I do the food thing. I'm still currently eating more than my husband, just because that's what my body needs to maintain that weight. And that's just what it is. And I have to accept that. And granted, he's, he eats along with me just so I have company, but like, I have to tell myself, don't feel like you have to keep eating because I haven't finished yet. Like you need to eat what your body needs and I need to eat what I need. But it's so hard and I I question everything. And then I see, why did they order a salad? I want a burger. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so hard, you know, and, and still telling myself, like, if we, like, if we go out, like, I feel compelled to order something that I know might be quote, lesser calories versus what I actually want to eat. Yeah. And that's just so hard. Like I could eat all the dessert in the world. And <laughs> I had, I had a good weekend. Like last week I was like, I'm going to try this new cake recipe. And I tried it and I, I had a slice of it. And it was just so good. And I was like, I'm, I'm glad this is a good step forward, but it's really hard for me to do that, to yeah. really just order what I want versus what the eating disorder wants. And I feel like as well, like if I go out to a restaurant, I, I feel the same as you in that I feel like I should have something that's like the lowest calories because I feel like there's this like expectation of like, oh, Cara has an eating disorder. So she yes. has to order the thing with the lowest calories yeah. or, and then people will just think, well, if I don't do that, then they'll just be like, oh, well, she's fine now. Right. Right. It's just, it's an endless thing. So how do you go about like, when you go up against these difficult triggers and things like, how do you process that information and get through it and make sure you don't give in to those bad thoughts? I think like a lot of therapy helped (laughs) a lot, Um, made like a really big difference. And we did a lot of work around like what my values are and what my goals Mm. are and about like a lot of my anorexia is about um, like a sense of achievement and perfectionism. And we did a lot of work around like achievements don't always have to be something that's tangible, like 
mm. even outside of anorexia, like a specific award or a grade or a promotion. It can be about like having healthy relationships with people or, yeah. you know, having like fun experiences and having good friends and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and that really helped me to kind of detach myself from everything having to be like number driven. Um, so that, that was really useful for me. And also I think outside of therapy, I've just done a lot of work personally about just learning about like what, what my body needs and that yeah. everyone's bodies are different and that mm -hmm. um, my, you know, the weight my body wants to be at isn't the same as the weight that I was set as a target weight when I was in treatment. And actually that's okay because when I was at the target weight that was set, I was still having to, to engage in a lot of eating disorder behaviors to maintain it there. And I just thought I can't do this forever. Like if I'm going to be doing all these behaviors, I might as well just do them properly and be underweight <laughs> again, because if I'm going to be at a healthy weight and still be doing these things and it, I don't know, it just felt like it sounds a bit of a silly thing to say really, but it felt like the trade-off wasn't worth it. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting out of, I'm not getting the the positive things that my eating disorder gives me. I'm just getting all right. the negative stuff. Right. Um. And then I just thought, yeah, I just don't. I went back to, I went back to university, um, and that's taken up just like a really like large portion of my time. And I, I needed it's a really mm. hard course. I needed to be able to concentrate properly and like dedicate the time that I needed to studying and stuff like that. And I just couldn't do that while having anorexia at the front of my mind as well. Like those two things just weren't compatible together. I just didn't have time for both. Um, yeah. So yeah, a lot of it was about one, just trying to like reassess what I thought like an achievement was. And two, just about having like really tangible goals that were existed yeah. very much outside of my eating disorder and not only existed outside of them, but, but just couldn't happen at the same time as yeah. having an eating disorder. So I just tried to really focus on like, what my life would look like if it wasn't there and that's what's kind yeah. of kept me on track I think yeah no you're absolutely right and I think in graduate school that was I think a turning point for me when I realized I thought I was in a good spot of recovery but then all those added stressors come in and I realized I really need therapy and what stinks and I don't know how it works in the UK but our health insurance stinks for students so I had to pay for therapy out of pocket and, but I needed to, and I needed it weekly, sometimes twice weekly, because I, I had to have that to really stay on top of it. And for my productivity to not suffer in order for me to do well in school, I had to be mentally okay. Yeah. And that was just really hard. And there's not that support system at the graduate school level, which was really hard for me to accept. And looking back now, I wish I advocated more for it and was more outspoken about how terrible the health system was like in graduate school, because I'm sure I wasn't the only student that needed therapy. Yeah. And um, but yeah, that's that's a critical point. It is really hard. And I'm very perfectionistic and I need goals and everything. If I don't meet those goals then I feel like a failure and that's when the eating disorder comes in. And it's just so hard to just say it's OK you know, your best effort is sometimes more than enough, but I never feel enough. And I have to like do X, Y, Z, and then I'll be happy, do X, Y, Z, and then I'll feel beautiful or worthy or what have yeah. you. And it's just, that's how the mind works. And I wish I could stop it. And it's, it's better now, but like, I always attribute it as like a light dimmer. Sometimes it's on full blast, 
Other times it's on lower, but it's always on. It's mm-hmm. never, it's not like a light switch. And that's just one so thing um, my therapist said to me about one of the reasons that like people with anorexia, particularly if it is sort of really like perfectionism driven, is like one of the reasons that um, people's self-esteem is so bad is because you can't ever be perfect at it because whenever you do what it wants you to do, the goalposts just move immediately. Yep. Um, so even if you're, you think that you're doing well, you're doing well, you know, for a day and then suddenly you need to do something different because you haven't, right. you haven't lost enough weight or you haven't eaten little enough or you haven't exercised enough, even though the day before that was enough, suddenly it isn't right. anymore. Um, right. So you're just constantly chasing something that you're never, ever going to be good at because there's and like what he said, there's always going to be someone that's better at it than you because you're always yeah. going to find someone who weighs less than you or eats less than you because that's yeah. just how it works, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so another thing I wanted to touch on, because we talked about like restaurant menus and and how we wanted to, we tend to go to the lesser one, but there was a proposal recently in the UK where they were going to mandate that all restaurants post the calorie counts on all menus, even at pubs and bars. And I read that and my mind went into like a frenzy. It's like for everyone there, like what is there a status on that? Is that now law? Like, like, how was the reaction to ever, to that? Um, I think I think it is coming into force. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't Gosh. yet, but um, my the last I heard about it is that yeah, it's being made into law. Um, I think it's every restaurant that has more than sixty employees. So if it yeah. was like uh, like an independent cafe. For example, it wouldn't be any like chain restaurant or big restaurant. Um, oh my gosh! It would pub or bar or whatever. Yeah, like you said, cafe, anything like that. Um, I am not very happy about it, <laughs> to be honest. Um, yeah. I think it's going to make life really difficult for a lot of people. I actually wrote a blog post about it when the um, proposal was coming out and spoke to loads of different people with eating disorders, and it was really interesting because obviously I was coming at it from the perspective with like my anorexia hat on and saying, well, yeah. this is going to be really difficult for me because um, it's going to potentially limit what I can eat. And then there was other people who had um, eating disorders that had like binge symptoms, like bulimia or binge eating disorder, who were saying, actually, it'll also be really difficult for me because um, it's probably more likely to trigger a binge um, because once I've eaten a certain amount of calories, I think I might as well just keep eating or um, and things like I'm that, which is really that. interesting because I wasn't, you know, I didn't, so, you know think about it from that perspective at all because yeah. I was coming at it from sort of the other end um so it was really interesting to hear about actually this is going to affect people with all kinds of eating disorders not just restrictive eating disorders um oh and even people who just you, you know who don't have like a diagnosable eating disorder but do have like difficult relationship with food um, and eating, like their right. body and stuff yeah yeah totally right. so um yeah to my knowledge it is still something that's coming into force but it just hasn't happened yet Oh my gosh. I I had an episode about that because it was pretty recent news and I was trying to look in the literature and research to see, is this even effective? And the consensus is no, it's not effective. So I was trying to come at it from not only, you know, as someone with an eating disorder, is this going to be extremely damaging for my recovery, but also it's just not going to work. So why are you going to put something like at least put forward a proposal that has data and facts behind it that makes sense and will make it better. You've shown that, you know, X leads to Y, but it doesn't. In fact, no. like it doesn't change people's food choices. It doesn't do anything. It will only hurt people. And I think that's why I just got so upset about it. But, you know, not that my podcast will be listened to by Boris Johnson or anything, you know, <laughs> um, but 
we will see. Oh, I think you froze for a second. <laughs> um, okay. And the other thing I wanted to say is I think right now you guys are still going through like a gas and food shortage because of no truck workers. Like, how is that going with like the anxiety levels of everyone? Like I keep reading about it and I'm just so scared for everyone. Yeah, it's pretty awful. It feels a bit like apocalyptic over here, to be honest, <sighs> considering we're like supposed to be this you know leading first world country or whatever and we've had to draft <laughs> the army in so everyone can get petrol like it's honestly it's disaster and um oh my God. the government keeps saying it's because of covid but the rest of europe is doing fine so it's obviously because of brexit um <laughs> so it's a bit of a nightmare um in terms of the food stuff like actually for me right now it's not so much a problem because the range of foods I can eat now is so much bigger. But when um, we first started getting all the food shortages when COVID started, it was awful because I was still in treatment then and I still had to follow up a really strict meal plan. Um, and there were so, so many things I still didn't feel like I could eat and I'd go to the shop and the shelves would just be like empty and it was yeah. just horrible. Um, but it's not so bad for me certainly now. But yeah, as a country, we are not we're not doing the best at the moment to be honest oh my gosh yeah i see i follow a lot of people in the uk and they're just like you know what can i just leave right now or wake me yeah. up when when the uk is back to normal you know if that will ever happen it's yeah. just i i feel terrible but i i thought back to when covid first happened as well like you know not only was there a lack of toilet paper, at least where i'm i was yeah, over here too but like my and I have a fairly good range of food as well, but like I had to go to maybe like, I didn't get my first choice, but I did have a second, third or fourth choice. And I was wondering about others who maybe only had one choice that they wanted and it wasn't there. And so I worried about people with, with eating disorders, especially. So gosh, yeah, I don't, I just don't know what's going on. Feel free to come over here and, you know, Thanks. we've got plenty of food. <laughs> <laughs> um so what's the what same as you like I so because I had like other choices it wasn't so much even though yeah it probably I wasn't getting my first choices very often but I had backups but I mean I felt I feel really fortunate that COVID hit over here yeah. after I'd been in treatment for about four months by that point um because I think if it had come any earlier it would have been like hugely yeah. problematic for me I think so right. um I think I was fortunate that I I ended up starting that process before it started to get really bad over here. Right. Right. So what's one thing that you wish people knew about eating disorders, particularly those that may not be as familiar with what the disease is or, or all mental health diseases? I think like for me, the, the biggest one is that it's not, you don't have to be underweight to have an eating disorder. And yes. I, I talk about this a lot and, the reason being, I think, is like so many people that have an eating disorder don't get support for it either because um, they just don't go to seek help for it because they're not underweight yeah. and they feel like they're not going to get taken seriously or they don't actually recognise that it's that much of a problem because of that reason. Um, and also because our services here are, so we don't do it for the insurance. We have like nationally funded healthcare yeah. with the NHS, but um, because it's free healthcare, the waiting lists are just enormous. Like they're so, so, so long that people wait for years um, for oh treatment sometimes. So um, I find it quite difficult because 
I know that there are people that are waiting for like a lot longer than I did. Um, and that makes me feel really guilty as well, because I think like, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because of how long the waiting lists are, um, and sometimes people are waiting such a long time that the way that it works is that basically the more underweight you are, the quicker you get seen. Um, because they just have to deal with the people that are like the most medically at risk. Yeah. And I find that quite difficult because when I, so I went in 2019 at the start of the year, I asked for a referral back into the service and I got declined from it because my BMI was healthy at the time. And then I asked for another referral back a few months later when it wasn't anymore. And then by the time I got assessed, I was suddenly like an urgent case. And then I ended up having to do day patient for six months. And I was really frustrated because I just thought if you'd have helped me when I asked for it yes. in the first place, maybe I wouldn't have had to take six months off work and, you know, go to hospital and all this sort of stuff. So like, as well as the fact that I think a lot of people miss out on treatment altogether, um, because they might never meet the criteria that the service want them to um, in order to fit into it. I also, from like a really like personal, my personal experiences with it, it was very frustrating that I ended up getting to a point where I was so like severely physically and mentally unwell when I asked for help so many months before and didn't at that point get it. So that's probably the biggest one for me is that I think, yeah, you don't have to be underweight. And actually, most people will never end up underweight, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't get any treatment for it. Right, right. No, I think that's that's the biggest one. And I, I hate that even BMI or weight is a marker or a threshold for who gets treatment and, and who gets diagnosed and, and whatnot. I think yeah. it's just so archaic and, and just not reflective of a disease that's so individually based. Like, yeah a lot of diseases. I I just don't think you can lump them all together and say, no, you can't because you aren't quite the low enough BMI. And I, when I started treatment um, and and I was a very strange case because I never was like overnight in a hospital, even though looking back, I probably should have been. Um, But it was, you know, I was monitored by my family was all, you know, very, I went to the doctor almost every day. So I don't know why I just didn't stay overnight. But um, for some reason, the doctor felt in me that I I could do it, that I had the willpower and that with therapy, I could get, I could get there. And eventually I did with lots of steps forward, steps back. Um, but because I was so underweight, that's why it was just so like accelerated the mode, the people I saw, the therapy that I got. But those that maybe weren't on that, end who are more normal looking they don't get that kind of treatment yeah that's exactly what happens here it's just terrible and here there's still insurance we go through insurance they don't cover it because it's a mental health disease so a lot of the treatment that i got was all out of pocket and it's just it's it it frustrates me because i still suffer a lot of the physical health effects from my eating Mm -hmm. disorder um, my stomach and GI issues are just all over the place. Um, and that is, I think the hardest part for recovery was when like, I felt so full, but I had to keep eating and like oh, really gosh. train my stomach, the bloating and the, you know, I could even get gross about it. It's just, it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. It's so painful, like so yeah. physically painful going through like refeeding and stuff. I think people just don't realize that how, like no. how uncomfortable just eating can make you and your body's just not used to it exactly and 
I always felt like I was about to throw up or whatever. Like mm. it was just too much food. And my doctor would say, no, your body's body is actually in so much of a deficit that your body will not throw up because it's soaking up all those yeah. nutrients. <laughs> and I was like, well, dang it. I feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you just have to really push through. It's so hard. When, um, when I started day patients, I started off on, well, I was obviously on like a refeeding meal plan. So it was really small to start with. And most of it was just milk. Um, and I literally just had to drink so much instead of like food, um, yeah. so much milk every day that I literally, by the time I, it got taken off my meal plan and replaced with like more food, I was like, I literally never want to look at a glass of milk again <laughs> in life. I literally felt like if you cut me open, milk would come out. Like, <laughs> felt like I was made of it. Like, it was awful. And like, I could never, I don't think I'll ever be able to drink a glass of milk like in my life again now. It just oh my God. Flashbacks. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? I know. I, there was, I drank a lot of like, like protein shakes with like peanut butter ice cream or whatever. <laughs> and for a long time, I just couldn't look at that ice cream ever. Oh, it was just so yeah. bad. It's just so bad. And then I had to get like a colonoscopy at a very young age just because there was a lot of GI problems going on. And I had to drink that nasty stuff, you know, the day before. And to this day, I cannot look at Sprite. I will never touch it. I will never drink it because it looks exactly the same. It just brings me back to that time. <laughs> so funny how our memory works um anyways i really really enjoyed talking to you i feel like i could talk to you for hours but i will close with one question one last question so what is your advice to someone out there that's listening that's just too afraid to take that first step and seek help i think i think asking for help is is the single best thing you can do for your recovery because it's mm. so so difficult to do it alone um I think I couldn't have done it by myself right. at all and I know some people do and I think that's great but I think that's a really um difficult way to go about it so I would always recommend that people ask for help if they can but I guess if it's someone that feels like they're struggling to make that step at all about just kind of evaluating like whether the life that they're living is the life that they want to keep on living. Cause for me, that was what the, the thing that kind of pushed me to go back into treatment again was that I was just like, I just can't, I'm so unhappy and I just can't imagine living like the rest of my life. Like I am now. And you know, mm. there was times where I was like, actually I'm probably not going to live like a huge amount of years longer if I keep living like them, how I'm living yeah. at the moment. And that's a really scary place to be when you're in your twenties. Um, but yeah, I would say maybe just have a think about what your goals are and what you want to get out of life and whether, like I said earlier, whether that aligns to the way that you're living at the moment. And if it doesn't, then for me, that was what the step was that made me think, yeah. actually, I need to do something about this because I just couldn't live how I wanted to live and live with an eating disorder at the same time. It just wasn't right. compatible. Um, right. So yeah, I, I think probably think about just like evaluating how your life is and what you would like different you know what different things you would like to be going on in your life and then use that as motivation to reach out yeah. and ask for support exactly exactly it's not a sustainable lifestyle and you always know it in the back of your mind yeah and for me it was like i do want to go and travel and be able to enjoy and see the world and not be hindered by an eating disorder and that's like you said that's a kind of motivation that i wanted to because i just felt so trapped by the eating disorder that i couldn't get out of it yeah. um and that's, no, that's, that's wonderful advice. Well, thank you again so much for, for coming on to the podcast. I really enjoy it. I know you probably have studying to do um, and enjoy just the rest of your, 
your Sunday evening before the new week starts. I always have the Sunday scaries. I get <laughs> yeah, like, I, I hate, you know, it's like Monday tomorrow, but I also <laughs> love Sunday cause it's football. And like, there's always like football games on. You just can't ever win in life. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, oh, thank you so me. much. <laughs> thank you. again for coming onto the podcast. That was so much fun. I really enjoy talking to people that have these lived experiences because I really try to understand a little bit more what people are going through. And it's it's a, interesting to see everything that we have in common, but also like other experiences that people may have, you know, her story about being diagnosed rather late with bipolar disorder and how that influenced her recovery. It's just crazy, you know, and how much medication has to be changed to make sure that you stay on the right path with recovery and kudos to her for being honest about, you know, I need to be on a medication that won't send me into relapse. Um, That just takes so much bravery. And I really admire her story, her bravery, and her dedication to being a mental health advocate. We really need more people like that. So I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Again, I'll leave the information about her her book coming out in the episode description and, and definitely read her blog and follow her on Twitter. She's absolutely a delight. Uh, so that's all that we have for this episode. Be sure to follow Picture Blurfect on Twitter, on Instagram, as um, and and leave us a rating. You know, make sure you you leave a five star review because I know this is a five star quality podcast. Um, and leave a comment because that really helps other people hear about the show. Um, and I hope that you know this kind of conversation can can be circulated more broadly um, because it's definitely worth hearing about. We often push this under the rug a little bit, but that's all we have for now. And remember that your worth goes beyond the number on the scale or the size of your clothing. And I hope you take that to heart into this new week. Talk to you later. Thank you.